But for those who have had math trauma, like it's super empowering. And my partner who, you know, when we would build together, he'd be like a half an inch plus one little line. (laughs) And that's a common experience for a lot of people. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 170 with Natalie Bogwalker. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you might recognize the name because Natalie has actually been a guest in the past. Natalie is a wealth of knowledge about natural building techniques. And on today's show, we are going to do a deep dive on two natural building techniques. The first is called slip straw and the second is called hempcrete. I went in knowing nothing about these, so I asked the really basic questions so you don't have to. And Natalie really did a wonderful job explaining everything. Uh, This one will really benefit if you head over to the show notes for this episode because I have photos of a lot of what we talked about. That's at thetinyhouse.net slash 170. And then Natalie also tells us all about how uh, Wild Abundance, her building school, had to shift to online learning during the pandemic and how she's actually now created what sounds like a pretty amazing online tiny house building course. So we cover all that and more, and I hope you stick around for the full conversation. This is a special week here at the tinyhouse.net headquarters because my online community, Tiny House Engage, is opening for registration starting this coming Tuesday. And Tiny House Engage is a really special online place where you can connect with other tiny house hopefuls, people who are DIY building their tiny houses, buying tiny houses, and even living the tiny house lifestyle. It's a really supportive community, and there are a lot of cool features and bonuses that you get when you are a member of Tiny House Engage, one of which is that you actually are able to listen live as I interview all of the podcast guests, and you can even submit questions for the show. You'll hear in this conversation with Natalie that there are actually some really great guest questions that I was able to ask on behalf of Tiny House Engage members, and I would love to be able to do the same for you. So if you'd like to learn more and get on the wait list to be notified when Tiny House Engage goes live on Tuesday, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash engage, E-N-G-A-G-E. All right, on with the show. Right, I am here with Natalie Bogwalker. Natalie has been building and living in tiny homes of various natural varieties for almost 20 years. She runs Wild Abundance, uh, which facilitates in-person tiny house classes, women's carpentry classes, natural building classes, online building classes, as well as classes on permaculture, gardening, and more. Natalie Bogwalker, welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to be here with you, Ethan. Thanks for having me again. You're welcome. Happy to have you back. Um, You know, it's been a while since we talked. I'm going to guess over a year since you were here. Mm -hmm. You know, on our on our last show, we talked a lot about uh, your story, kind of your background of how you came to to found a, a building school. And then we talked a little bit like we we did kind of an overview of some natural building techniques. Um, mm-hmm. And so today, you know, I was hoping that we could do more of a, a deep dive. 
on, you know, one or two natural building techniques. Um, but I was first just hoping to to have you tell us, you know, how how are things going? You know, it's uh, it's June 2021 right now and the U.S. is kind of coming out ish of the pandemic. You know, how how have things been going at Wild Abundance through this last year? Well, it has been a whirlwind. And <laughs> when we first got news about the pandemic, our staff was very confused, <laughs> pretty overwhelmed. We're like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to cancel all our classes. We're going to go out of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all this stuff. And so we, um, we just got on and we're not going to be able to help our students, you know, and not going to exist anymore. And luckily we are a fairly resilient bunch of people. <laughs> so we, uh, we started the online gardening school, which did not exist prior to April of 2020. So we started that and we were, we realized at some point that because our classrooms are all outdoors, that we would just require masks and that we could still run our classes. So last year we canceled a couple, just a couple classes. And then we still ran our in-person tiny house class and our women's basic and advanced carpentry classes. And so that was such a blessing to be able to keep serving our folks and to be able to just have have some stability. One big change was we um, the in-person tiny house class, the way that it worked is it's a pretty good sized group of people. There's typically 30 to 35 students in it. And we would do all the lectures all together at a local university. And then we would split the class up to do all of the hands-on natural building techniques and for the tiny house builds. Mm-hmm. And so the smaller groups felt very comfortable, but the big group did not. So we chose to take all the lectures from the class and put them online. Mm-hmm. And then when we finished with that, we were like, oh, well, this is a good, good bit towards having an online tiny house class. And so we kind of like accidentally ended up offering an online tiny house class. So we are right now in the midst of really beefing that up and creating more hands-on quote-unquote virtual content um, so that the class can stand on its own really well and be really helpful to folks who are not able to come to our in-person tiny house class because we not only is there like the travel issues with getting here but we currently have a waiting list of 1700 people for that class and so, so um, you know, not everyone is going to get into the class. You know, we open some of these classes up and they fill within, well within an hour. Wow. And so we're really hoping to offer that content to a wider audience because we just don't have the capacity to serve everyone that we would love to serve in person. And there's, you know, it's expensive to come, you know, to a place, leave your whole life for a while and and pay the tuition and all of these things. So we we're wanting to create also just an accessible option for folks who are wanting to learn step-by-step how to build a tiny house. So it's pretty exciting, tiny houses and not so tiny houses. And it's a class that we're especially, is especially geared towards women or anyone else who has felt disempowered with building in our culture, which is which is 
you know, not a small percentage of people. So we just really, it, we just got really excited about making this content accessible to people. So in the many different ways. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. One of the, I mean, I, I feel like one of the challenges to go online is that for those who feel disempowered by the the world of building, you know, they yeah. may never have picked up, uh, you know, an impact driver or a circular mm-hmm. saw. And part of the magic of the in-person class is that you, you know, you can actually say, yeah, it's, it's okay. Let's do this. You're going to, you're going to use this circular saw and we're going to, you're, we're going to make sure you're safe. We're going to watch you do it. Um, yeah. how, you know, how do you handle that in the online setting? Well, not only do we go through the basics of the circular saw, we go through the basics of the tape measure, Mm. (laughs) you know, along, along with about 15 other tools. And that's because we have a lot of experience teaching these basic tool skills Mm -hmm. because we've taught at this point, dozens of women's basic carpentry classes. And so some of the same teachers that teach those classes and who have fielded hundreds of questions about each of these tools are the people who we've engaged to be teaching these tools classes. So that feels really good to me. And it's, you know, it's interesting because I also have an online hide tanning class and that's a, that's a skill that, you know, no one thinks of as being something you could teach virtually because it's just such a, such a hands-on kind of abstract skill that's also very, you know, it's a, it's a primitive skill. It's a skill that is, is very earth-based and the feedback that we've gotten from that course, because we are very thorough people (laughs) is that, oh my gosh, I never thought it would be possible, but I like hand this hide. And it's like, (laughs) it was like so easy given like the, given the step-by-step instructions that you give. So we feel really good about it. And so, you know, there's, everything in that course from hands-on, you know, how to read a tape measure. Like, believe it, there's a lot of people out there who have some math trauma. And, you know, obviously many of the students who take the class won't watch the tape measure class. And, and that's the glory of this class is it's really a library of classes. So you watch the ones that you need to watch and you don't watch the ones you don't need to watch. Right. But for those who have had math trauma, like it's super empowering. And my, my partner who happens to be male is one of these people. And like, you know, when we would build together, he'd be like a half an inch plus one little line. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a common experience for a lot of people. So we really break it down and really take the mystery out of it. And I think really like get people feeling empowered, you know, from the very ground up from the tape measure and how to properly sharpen a pencil. So you won't be frustrated as you're using it and the difference between a carpentry pencil and a regular pencil. And like, you know, so there's basics like that. And then there's like, you know, different types of roof design and how to implement those different types of roof design. And there's like, there's electrical, like we go way into electrical. And, you know, part of the electrical too, is we say, you know, definitely depending on where you are, some places you just have to hire an electrician, some places you can do it yourself, but you need to have someone who's licensed, look over your work and make sure you're not going to start a fire. But whatever the case is, we go from very basic techniques to pretty advanced techniques and cover like how to 
like just basically every single step of building a tiny or not so tiny house. Nice. So yeah, I feel really good about it. We talk about advantages of being on wheels versus on a foundation. We talk about code. Um, we're actually soon going to have a free class that's kind of a prelude to this, the bigger class, which is which is 10 ways to save money building a tiny house too, which is a big deal in this day and age with fluctuations and lumber prices and all of this stuff. So yeah, I'm feeling really proud and excited about this team of folks who have come together and it's really a team. Like I am teaching, I'm teaching like, I think less than one tenth of the classes. Wow. So there's this whole team, which is like, more than half women instructors, which I feel really good about and, and instructors from lots of different walks of life and backgrounds and all this stuff. So it's just feeling, it's feeling really solid. Awesome. Well, that's, that's so exciting. Congrats for kind of turning lemons into lemonade there. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we try. Yeah. Yeah. Or turning, uh, turning, uh, hides into, uh, into leather jackets. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> where does one even get, jacket. where does one get a hide to tan? I wouldn't even well, know where to start. <laughs> Typically we are tanning deer hides. And this okay. is something like in my, in my younger life, I was spent a lot of my time doing primitive skills. So I, I'm also really into wild foods and all of this stuff. And, and with hide tanning, this is something I'm, I'm honestly a little more into building these days than I'm into into building clothing. Mm-hmm. But deer hides typically are pretty easy to come by if you call up a deer processor. So hunters ah. often take their deer to a deer processor and those processors, you know, turn the animal, so to speak, into meat, you know? And so they, they bring in the deer and it comes out in packages. I really like to, you know, butcher my own deer if I'm doing that, which is not a huge part of my life in this, in this segment of my life, but has been, but it's a great place to get hides and they're just often taking them to the dump. (laughs) So it's this beautiful interruption in the waste stream. And like, I've had, I've had several vegans take the class because they, and I, I taught this in person for about a dozen years before we did the, before we did the online version. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think what really, what really makes an online class awesome is someone who has a ton of experience teaching it in person. So they know all the questions, you know, that come up. Right. But whatever the case is, we've had vegans take the class because they were, they didn't see any cruelty going into getting the hide. Like basically it's like interrupting the waste stream. Right. It's already there. Yeah, totally. So. And it's just such a beautiful and ancestral process. But yeah, so that's another online class. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And that one still happens in person too, though. That one still happens in person too. And Tyler Lavenberg, who was my apprentice about 10 years ago, now teaches that class uh-huh. in person. Nice. And yeah, it's crazy. Was Wild Abundance has grown. The amount of in-person teaching that I'm able to do just with running the whole organization is, has changed quite a bit. <laughs> so we have like a lot of amazing teachers that I feel really good about. Cool. Yeah. Well, let's jump into um, 
you know, a couple of, of these natural building techniques. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, last, last time we spoke, we, we talked about a lot of different ones and I believe we spoke, you were in your house and it's built with, remind me, I can't remember. It's a log cabin. Log cabin. So the, the initial build was a 12 by 16 log cabin, two floors. Mm -hmm. And then I did a couple additions on it, which I think is just such a fabulous thing to do if you have a tiny house, because a lot of people build a tiny house, then they have a kid and they're like, ah, this tiny house thing, it doesn't really work. Yeah. So being able to, whether it's a mobile unit that then you might, might um, later, if someone purchases land or whatever, it might become a permanent unit or whether you start off with a permanent unit, I think planning for expansion is a really good idea if you're building a tiny house. So then there's an addition that is, that use, well, it's a timber frame structurally, and then it uses slip straw, which is a pretty cool natural building technique. So that's one of the additions. And then the other addition is using just standard stick framing, but with wood that is sourced locally, roughs on lumber. And then I use some traditional lime plaster techniques. Cool. And um, on the inside, on the interior and parts of the exterior. Cool. Well, that's a perfect yeah. segue because, you know, slip straw really caught my interest. And, you know, we were chatting a bit before we started rolling. And I was like, well, I don't even know what it is. So, um, Let's let's start there. Like what what is slip straw? Totally. So that's an excellent question. So slip straw is made from basically the same materials that you would make cob from. But while cob is incredibly laborious in my opinion, and I've done a lot of cob stomping um, to create and <laughs> requires an extremely beefy foundation. Cob is also a thermal mass material which is appropriate in certain parts of the world, but in the part of the world where I live and where a lot of probably your listeners live, an insulative material makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And so straw clay can be on just a post foundation. It is, doesn't have to be as thick as cob. You can get away with like eight or 10 inches of thickness mm -hmm. and it is very fast. Like of all the natural building techniques. I mean, all these, Natural building techniques, I mean, there's a lot to be said for them in that they're relatively inexpensive if you're doing all the labor yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're using totally non-toxic materials. They're really, they're really, really fabulous in so many ways. But the amount of labor that goes into them is something that is often not talked about. And that's why a lot of these techniques, like, like you often don't only see people building with cob if they're having a cob workshop. Because it's so labor intensive. And if you don't have the time to do it yourself, there's no way you can pay for the labor. It's just so expensive. Whereas slip straw and hempcrete are both techniques that where the labor is, is much more reasonable. It's still going to be more laborious than conventional construction. Mm -hmm. But when, if you were accounting for the cost of, um, the cost or the labor that goes into, or the cost anyway, that goes into a lot of these 
techniques which are really not good for the earth, mm-hmm. then I think that it would be a wash, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so so straw clay is way less laborious. It needs, it does not have the same foundation, heavy duty foundation requirements that Cobb does. And it is insulative. So what, so it, is it not as heavy because the inside of like in a cob wall, it's just the entire wall is all essentially clay. Whereas with Basically. slip straw, is it that you're kind of piling up straw and then like encapsulating it in clay? Yeah. So with, with cob, you are creating a clay wall where straw is basically the rebar holding it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, it's almost like you're creating a rock. <laughs> it's yeah. not a rock, but it's pretty darn close to it. And so it's primarily clay and sand, the cob wall. And the proportion of clay and sand just depends on the soil that you're using, the subsoil. Okay. And with straw clay, basically what you do is you, stay, you take straw and you coat it in just a thin clay slip. There's no sand involved. And then you use like the, um, the wall structure that's holding it up because the, the straw clay is not load bearing is very similar to just a conventional stick framed wall, which is how almost all buildings are framed in this country. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a really nice thing to be able to access more conventional building techniques because our culture is set up to be able to do those really efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so you can frame up a wall very similarly to how you would frame it up if you were just doing standard construction. And then you use wall forms, which is like just made out of plywood, or you could use board if you don't want to use plywood. You do like a, it, it's, it's interesting because I have videos on this and I have all sorts of, <laughs> pictures that really help um, help represent this, but it's a little hard to explain without the pictures. But basically you, you have like a stud framed wall mm-hmm. that just has like two by four studs and then, or a different size. And then you take two pieces of plywood and you put them on either side of the stud wall. And typically you use spacers or some other technique. You can just put in screws and not sink them in all the way. Okay. So that those plywood forms are not being sucked up to the studs. They're held out from the studs. Okay. And then you take straw and you coat it in a thin clay slip. You stuff it into the wall and you have to tamp it a little bit into the corners, but you don't want to tamp, you don't want to compress it too much because then it won't be as fluffy because Mm -hmm. fluffy equals insulative. Right. And then after you stuff it into the wall, for however high your um, your plywood form is, you can immediately unscrew your plywood form and move it up. Mm-hmm. And you just have to overlap it about eight inches or so. And then you can stuff it in to the next section. Like, so you can actually finish a straw clay wall if you have enough, you know, person power and a, like efficient enough technique in a day. It's really amazing. And that's, that's even faster than hempcrete. You can only do two feet in a day. But because of the amazing interlocking glory of the straw, <laughs> you, can, you can get a lot done at once. So yeah, I have a good bit of experience. I lived in a straw clay cabin that I built pushing 20 years ago. It was my first tiny house. It was eight feet by 12 feet and it was tiny. 
but, but, um, but so that was the first cabin that I ever built mm-hmm. after I attended a bunch of natural building workshops and then actually apprenticed, so to speak, with my partner who was a carpenter and then learned how to actually build. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of natural building classes, all they teach you is how to put clay onto walls. But, but we, we go deeper because I was jaded by that and I had to go and learn carpentry on my own. So we like to teach the two together. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool technique. I think that it is not the most insulative material. Like, you know, straw bale is way more insulative and there's other, like, I think hemp, hempcrete is more insulative as well. But also way thicker, right? Like a straw bale wall is going to be like a foot and a half thick or something. Yeah. It's going to be way thicker depending on which way you, which way you put the straw bales. Yeah. But, you know, when you're talking tiny, like a straw bale wall will take up a huge amount of your footprint. And like, I, again, here I am talking about things that when I teach, I usually have a whiteboard mm-hmm. <laughs> demonstrating, mm-hmm. but, but like if you have, you know, a 12 by 16 footprint and you're using bales that are foot and a half thick, the footprint that you're left with, like if you start with like a 200 square foot ish footprint, and then you have to take up the whole perimeter with a foot and a half thick material you're left with a really small space inside mm-hmm. and that that consideration of how much how much percentage of your footprint the walls take up is sig- a significantly higher percentage when you're talking about a small footprint than if you're talking about like a 20 by 40 house or something right right where it's not that significant so for me and also you know tiny houses are so easy and so if you're going tiny, I think that a straw bale really doesn't make sense unless you're in a very cold place. Right. So with with the straw bale, after you've, you know, coated that straw in a light, light clay slip and kind of packed it in, mm-hmm. is there an additional coating that gets applied, you know, inside and outside to kind of finish the wall? Yes. So with slip straw, the straw bale is a whole, yes. whole nother story, okay. which I think you just, you just misspoke, which I do all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just to see, clarify. Let's see why. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's so many straws and bales and slips and all this stuff. So after, um, after you build the wall, you wait for the wall to dry out, which in some climates is quite a quick thing. Mm-hmm. And my climate, being that I live in a temperate rainforest in the Southern Appalachians, mm-hmm. it can take like, you know, a month or six weeks. Wow. And then after that point, you, and during that time, the wall will sometimes actually sprout because straw, while it is the byproduct of grain production, oftentimes has little bits of grain or seeds left in it. So <laughs> your wall will sprout a little bit, but then the sprouts will die as mm-hmm. the wall dries up. And, um, and then you apply plaster. And so that plaster can be an earthen plaster or it can be a lime-based plaster. Mm -hmm. But you should never use stucco on any sort of earthen wall because stucco does not breathe in the same way that lime plaster and earthen plaster does. And I prefer to use on my log cabin on the chinking and also on my log cabin where I did the addition that was slip straw. I use, I like to use a lime plaster for the exterior and then an earthen plaster for the interior. Got it. 
And that's because the lime is just much more resilient to getting wet. Like if you get, if you get earthen plaster really wet, if you like spray it with a hose for an hour, like it turns back into mud. And if you spray a, um, if you spray a lime plastered wall with a hose for an hour, it is not the same effect because lime plaster basically turns into limestone Mm. and which is pretty awesome. But for interior use, there's just, it can be really lovely to work with earthen plasters. And that's something our class goes into quite a bit. Our online class and our in-person class is you don't even need to wear gloves when you're working with earthen plasters, which is so lovely. And then I like to finish off the interior with an Elise or earthen paint, which, you know, you can go with all sorts of different colors and you can put mica in it, which is fabulously sparkly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) wonderful. And the earthen paint, the Elise, is something that's not just limited to doing in an earthen structure. You can also do it on top of drywall. And that's something I've done a lot of. And it's really lovely for transforming a more conventional space or one that just has to be built more quickly into, or with less labor, into a really earthy feeling place. So yeah, Elise, it's amazing. Cool. We have a blog about it on our website. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to link, you know, and for those who, who are regular listeners of the show, you'll know that, you know, links for everything will be on the show notes for this episode. Um, and this will be episode number 170. So it'll be at thetinyhouse.net slash 170 for links to as much as I can find of what nice. we've talked about. Um, That's so I, awesome. A question about Slipstraw, and I'm going to try to not call it the wrong thing as to confuse no, everyone severely. Um, so with, I know with Cobb, Cobb it is kind of structural in the sense that like, if you want to add a, a window, you can just kind of, as you're building up your Cobb wall, essentially just like, yep, I'm going to put a window here and then like mm-hmm. Cobb around it. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Slipstraw, do you frame the windows and doors in like conventional construction, you know, with a, king and a jack stud and a sill and all that yes yes you do you do and i find that to honestly be while it's not as organic it is definitely more simple and in my opinion works a lot better (laughs) than doing it with cob so yeah i i really i mean cob is great for fixed windows and you can have like all sorts of cool shapes around them but Mm -hmm. then when it comes to keeping the window clean (laughs) yeah having like mud wall interfacing with glass it's pretty challenging and so that's something that i really appreciate with um with the slip straw is just it 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 it's like plug and play with all of the standard windows and and all of the standard framing mm-hmm. that we use in this culture the tricky the tricky part with the windows is is that like i said you're framing the slip straw wall out with typically two by fours, which is great because it's a lot less lumber, right? you know, and it's a lot less expensive and it's a lot more, less trees being cut down. But when you get to the window, you want to do the window frame, not the, not the king studs, but the frame itself, you want to do with boards that are the full thickness of the wall. Ah, full thickness of the wall. So maybe you bump up to 
like a two by a two six by eight or two by eight for the windows. Okay. Two, two by eight or two by 10, depending on how thick you're going with your wall. The first cabin that I built was two by six mm-hmm. uh, or it was, it was six inches thick and it was not, not terribly warm. So I okay. went with, I went with eight inches on the addition that I put on this cabin. And that was, that's definitely better, but it is not quite as insulative. Like I would, I would think just guessing it's probably like R12. Okay. It's not as insulative as, you know, I think, I think a straw bale wall is R36. Right. I think. <laughs> Amazing. I just uh, asked Dr. Google real quick. Um, oh, yeah. It seems that the R value in one test of straw is is 3.4 per inch. So it sounds like you're about about on there. A, tw- a, f- a two by four wall would be uh, about R12. Well, but the wall is actually, the two by four is just the frame. The wall ends up being eight inches thick. So straw just on its own in a straw bale is more insulative per inch than it is when you make it into straw clay. And that's because you're coating it with that clay slip mm-hmm. and you're, you have to pack it in. You have to compact it a little right, bit. Right. And so that slip is more of a mass material. So that takes away some of the, some of the ins- insulation yeah. factor. And then the packing it in takes away more of the, of the insulation factor. And there's another piece to it that can take away, because I did some thermal imaging of my addition because I'm just dorky like that. And um, (laughs) because I have a friend who runs this ecological building center. And so I borrowed his thermal imaging camera. And good friend to have. Yes, great friend to have. And it was pretty fascinating because typically straw clay, even if you put a bunch of stuff in it to keep this from happening, it always settles a little bit. And then right before you plaster, you have to do some like straw heavy cob at the very top to mm. take up that space okay. from the settling. And once it's dry, it's, it's done settling, but it always settles a little bit. And that little area of cob had definitely a much higher rate of heat transfer than right. anywhere on the rest of the wall, which totally makes sense. And it's just one of the, like better that it's just a tiny bit of cob than the whole wall being. Right. Yeah. So you, so you essentially have a thinner, a thinner than you, if you had built the wall out of cob, it would have been much thicker, but you have this thin, relatively thin strip of cob up at the top. That's going to yes transfer heat up there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what, like, what would you say is like the best use case for, for slip straw? Like, you know, what's the ideal building size and climate for, for slip straw? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And I'm going to take us off topic because there's something that I wanted to address Let's before go. I get to that. I'll buckle, I'll buckle so, up for off topic. Here we go. Woohoo! Um, so one thing that I want to mention is that a lot of people do slip straw where, you know, how I said you want to leave some space mm-hmm. between the forms and the two by four frame. And so that is not something I did with my first slip straw building. With my first slip straw building, it was framed out with two by sixes. And I just sucked the forms with my, well, back then it was a drill, not an impact driver, um, right up to my, um, my frame. 
And the thing about that is then you have a lot of heat transfer through your studs, just like with conventional construction. But something that's really cool about the way I did my last project, which I, which this man, Steve-O Broadmerkel, who's a friend of mine, turned me on to, which is so great, is by leaving that space in between the studs and your form, which I will get you a drawing of this so that the viewers might be able yeah. to see it and okay. understand better, is that then you do not have the same, the same thermal transfer that you would if your stud goes all the way through the wall because you're coating, you're encasing the stud with the insulative material, which I think is a very cool technique and also something that's used with hempcrete. Okay. Which is another really cool, but much more expensive way to build. Awesome. All right. Well, that's that's really cool because we talk about that a lot in conventional tiny house building, you know, creating a thermal break so that you don't get that transfer. Yes. And it sounds like you essentially are doing the same thing just in a natural building. Yes, totally. And without toxic materials and foam, which is like such a, has so much embodied energy into it. So much. Yeah. But is really awesome to use. (laughs) But yeah. So anyway, and then the ideal climate for straw clay. So Straw clay, I would not use in a mobile tiny. I think it's it's best used in a permanent tiny. And that's because just anything that has plaster on it. I mean, honestly, the straw is very strong mm-hmm. and really interlocking, but all the shaking going down the road is just going to wreak havoc, especially on your plaster. Yeah. And so I think it's just not appropriate, even though it might be light enough. Okay. It's still, it's still not appropriate. And that goes for most natural building techniques. Although you could definitely do, and I have done in our workshop because we have two tiny houses leave our workshop each time we run it and we run it twice a year. So we have four, we crank out four tiny houses a year at this point, which is pretty cool that go to like the uh, recipient's are part of the whole process. It's a really beautiful thing, you know, for mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. recipients to receive them at the end of the classes. But anyway, <laughs> back to my point, which is um, that it makes more sense to do straw clay on a permanent tiny. And with the, um, with the climate, I would say It'd be nice if it was a little drier than it is here in the Southern Appalachians, which is Uh basically the entire country except of the U.S. anyway, except for the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. So somewhere drier than here would be great, which is pretty much everywhere. And I would say that I would not go, like I do a lot of gardening, so I don't know how many of of your listeners are familiar with the USDA hardiness zones, but that's kind of a nice way to talk about it. Yeah. And you can look up your hardiness zone really easily on the internet. So I would use um, straw clay construction for anything zone seven or warmer. And I also think that if, and we're in zone six, It says on the maps that we're in zone seven, but we're not because we're not in the town and the town is way warmer than the country because of all of the thermal mass in 
all the roads, <laughs> all the buildings. So anyway, I would use something that's a thermal mass material if you're in a desert. Okay. If you're in a place that has really big temperature fluctuations, mm -hmm. like from night to day, like I think Taos, New Mexico, for example, I'm just going to, I don't have access to Google as I am speaking, but I would imagine that they have um, at times temperature variations from or gradients from night to day that are like 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit of like the difference in the temperature. And for that sort of climate, you want a thermal mass material because that's going to hold on to a constant temperature and really take make it like pleasant inside, inside, whether it is really, really hot out or relatively cold out. It's going to yeah. like make everything more moderate. Now, the insulation is appropriate for places where in the winter, you always want your space to be warmer than it is outside. <laughs> and right. in the summer, ideally, your place would be cooler than it is outside or the right. same temperature. But for at least one of the seasons, you want it to be re a really different temperature from inside to outside rather than just being like a happy medium between the day and the night. Cool. And so for anywhere that is not a desert, that's usually the situation. So I would say somewhere zone seven or warmer, that is not a desert. Got it. So that's, I'm looking, I, I pulled it up and it looks like we're, we're kind of talking about the, um, the Southeast and South, Southwest and mud like California and and yeah. Western the, Oregon and Washington, but then avoiding yes. the Olympic Peninsula. Yes, yes, too wet. Got it, got it, too <laughs> wet up there. Awesome. Totally. Yeah, yeah, and I would think for a good bit of the Mid Atlantic, yeah, it would be appropriate too. Yeah, because so, yeah. you get zone, you get zone six. That works in like New Jersey and the lower yeah. half of Pennsylvania and Ohio and, and West Virginia and a bunch more. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're more close to the mo mediating, right. moderating ocean temperatures, then. And let's be honest, be the cold. zones are, who knows when this map is from? I'm sure the zones are all one warmer <laughs> than they were. <laughs> oh yeah. They totally are. Yeah. They totally are. And yeah. it's been interesting with our online gardening school. Like we've made our own system for all that because yeah. there's just. Like basically the zone just shows you like the coldest temperature possible. It doesn't show the average temperature. Right. So right. that's been interesting to, but we're not talking about that right now. So yeah, straw clay. It's pretty awesome. And, awesome. And hempcrete, I'm just yeah. starting to work with. And um, I haven't worked with it much because the materials are harder to come by. Okay. So yeah, what what is hempcrete? Because we actually... Um, we had Hajar Gibran on the show who teaches, who kind of pioneered and teaches aircrete, which uh -huh. is something, which I know is something different. Um, yes. but they suffer from having very similar names. So what is yes, hempcrete? As, as is similar in this, in this field. And that's, I think, largely because there, there's a lot of similarities between okay. the techniques because they're all techniques to make a wall, you know, right. <laughs> and naturally built roof systems are a whole nother story, which I could, I could go on for quite some time about and, and do in one of the classes in the online building school, online yeah. tiny yeah. house class. So the, um, so hempcrete is very similar to straw clay in the way that it's framed out 
in the walls and with the types of forms that are used, although there can be different techniques for moving the forms around. But basically, hempcrete, instead of using straw, you're using hemp herd. And so that's basically chunked up hemp stalks. Okay. And so those chunked up hemp stalks are very cool because they have a lot of trapped air in them. And when we talk about insulation, that's what we're talking about is fluffy, light materials that have lots of trapped air inside. And the cool thing about the hemp herd is it's relatively rigid. So it's like there's a bunch of trapped air, but when you compress it, it's not going to compress Mm. because the hemp material that's in from that stock is relatively rigid. And so that is then coated in a special type of lime. And so the thing about the lime, the lime is the binder that holds everything together. Okay. And hempcrete was found, I, I can't remember exactly where, I think somewhere in France, from like ancient times, there was hempcrete that was like exposed to the elements and still totally solid. Like it's basically like concrete. Like it's amazing material. Wow. So, you know, the, the, what you can do with hempcrete is not limited to building wall forms that are covered by a roof like it is with slipstraw. Like you could have much less of a wall overhang. Like there's a lot of different things like theoretically, well, I'm not going to get into all the, all the, all the possibilities, but the thing with it is the binder is a type of lime. And so that lime like any type of quicklime has been heated to a high temperature so that then when it is brought into contact with water, it, um, it then when it dries, it basically goes back into being limestone. Wow. And so when you mix this hemp herd and this very specialized lime, which unfortunately is not manufactured in the United States at this point, which is one of the issues with hempcrete is mm. the availability of these materials. Like we have quicklime that I use for lime plaster that I can get really easily. But when I talked with this expert on hempcrete about ordering the stuff for this project that he's going to be teaching here, Tim Callahan, he's just fabulous builder and designer he sent me to this company that imports it from Europe. And so so when you're looking at embodied energy in the structure, you're not only looking at the amount of fuel that was used to bake that lime, nor are you looking at the amount of carbon that was released into the atmosphere when that chemical reaction happened to turn that limestone Mm. into quicklime. You are also looking at then importing these 80 pound bags of lime from Europe. Wow. <laughs> and then okay. using them here, which is really ridiculous here because if you go over the Tennessee line where I live, there's tons of limestone. So it, it's, 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 a, it's all a really cool technique that all these materials could be available locally, but they currently aren't. Mm. And the, the equipment and the know-how that goes into making this very nice lime is something that that just it would it would take some money and some time and someone being really dedicated, which I hope one of your listeners decides to dedicate their life to creating local um, localized lime kilns like there used to be, but right now they aren't. Oh, there used to be. Okay, there used to be. 
And actually, when I was traveling, I used to live in Spain and traveling around the mountains in Spain, like there's lime kilns all over the place because they used to, you know, there didn't used to be super highways and people would mine lime and bake it locally. But whatever the case is, also the hemp, there's some supply issues because while growing hemp is now legal with a permit in North Carolina and there's huge hemp fields in a lot of places, the processing facilities are not everywhere. There right. is one now near Durham, North Carolina. It's called the Hempville. <laughs> and they sold out of their hemp herd almost immediately after the harvest last year. So they still have some available for purchase, but it is imported from Europe. <laughs> yeah. And, and Hempitecture, which is out West in Idaho, they also have hemp herd available, which I think is actually from the East Coast grown hemp, but to order it, it was going to be $1,000 in shipping while the product that I was buying for the size of wall I'm doing was only $400. $400 was $1,000 in shipping. So one of our students is going to pick up this European hemp herd from Durham. And I'm just excited that they are growing it locally and processing it locally. And hopefully they get to a scale that can support the need. Yeah. Which is big because it's such a cool material. Yeah, it's, it seems like it really has a lot of potential as a material. Yeah, um, totally. So f- it, it looks like equipment-wise, this, this mixture of the hemp herd and, and quicklime has to get kind of sprayed into the wall. Like what, what it's do you poured. For, Oh, it's poured. Okay. It's poured into the wall. So okay. it's a much more wet mixture okay. than the straw clay. Okay. which the straw clay is like, is basically like, you know, straw coated in a very thin, like it's like straw right. coated with salad dressing of, yeah. a salad dressing of. <laughs> a salad um, dressing. Yeah, it is. That's how I like to describe it. Yeah. And you kind of like, you can toss it like you mm. would toss a salad. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the, if you're doing it on a large scale, then there's special types of like concrete mixers that work right. really well. Okay. So this can be done on a more industrial scale. It can also be done on more of a home scale. Right. And basically you, you mix the lime and then you add in the hepford and then you pour this like slurry mixture, mixture into the wall. Right. And so it, it looks like also that there are people, you can pour it into forms and make blocks. Yes. Yeah, you can make blocks and then you can build with those blocks. Yeah, which I mean, it's a very cool, it's a very, very cool material. It's still like you need a relatively thick wall, similarly to slip straw. So, and because I don't think that it really makes sense for a mobile unit even to use the hempcrete. I think if you want to go natural with a mobile unit, I think going for just a stick frame with hopefully local lumber and then using a more natural insulation material makes a lot of sense. And there's, there's lots of different things available that there's hemp wool actually, which is a very comparable to fiberglass insulation with its R value. And there's also, I've used real wool. I use that in my cabin, although I'm having some insect issues with Uh (laughs) even though it was and it was so expensive but even though it was it was impregnated with borax and they assured me there would be no insect issues 
10 years down the line, I'm, I'm having Woolmots and oh I don't God. like what I'm seeing. Yeah, no. it's bad news. Yeah, and very there's bad. Also, there's rock wool too. I don't know if you, yes. if you like that as a product. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fine product. It's, it's a little more industrial, you know, than those other options. And I think a little less renewable, but it is as far as toxicity, it's definitely not bad. It's expensive though, because I think largely it cannot compress in the way that fiberglass compresses. So it's really fiberglass is you know, the standard insulation material. And nowadays, you know, they have formaldehyde-free fiberglass. And what's so great about the fiberglass is that in in our modern, you know, day and age of not having vernacular architecture, (laughs) which is a whole nother story, but is that it, you can compress it. And so the shipping cost is way low, whereas rock wool cannot be compressed. So you know, all of this hugely fluffy. I mean, if you can imagine all the fluffed up uh, volume of insulation for a house, like even for a tiny house, it's pretty big. So it gets pretty expensive to ship it around. Got it. Right. And that's a big part of its expense. Wow. So, and you, you mentioned that you're going to be doing a hempcrete project and you have an instructor coming to do that. What can you tell me about, about the project or about the class? Yeah, totally. So I like to teach some classes. And if there's ever anything that I think that there's someone more expert than me to teach it, I'm happy to hire that person. <laughs> so we yep. have this man, Tim Callahan, who's this just wealth of knowledge. Yep. Teaching this hempcrete class that is a piece of our tiny house and natural building class for this year. That class, we are offering two this year, both of them filled almost instantly during our New Year's sale. So there's wow. not there's not spots available. Although if you get on our waiting list, occasionally a spot will open up. So it's definitely the thing to do. And if people get on our waiting list, it's also helpful because then you find out about the New Year's sale and then you can actually get into the class, which is to a great. class. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's just it's such a good class. <laughs> It's a really good class. Like, you know, it's 10 days long. People get the all of our online materials and lectures mm-hmm. ahead of time. So all of the time here is hands-on. And so that is 10 days of hands-on natural building and tiny house construction gets you pretty far with like, you can leave this class and like actually know you can come having done nothing and leave being like, yeah, I could build a tiny house. Yeah. Take me a while, but I could totally do it. <laughs> do you get through a whole house in those 10 days or are there like multiple houses in different kind of stages of completion that people can work on? We split the class and we do two builds. We typically do one mobile uh-huh. and one permanent. And so the students just have to choose, you know, which they want to do. And we start with the recipient has to have the floor done. And we do, we have another, like we teach foundations and floor system just with, with another, with like we build a deck or something, right, you know, right. that's just like a little bit easier. So that way we have everything staged and ready to go for the build. But the students also get to learn the foundation and floor system. Nice. And then the class will frame the whole thing, sheath it and install the doors and windows sometimes get to some of the, some of the electrical and insulation. And 
put the roof on. So that's, yeah, we got pretty far. Yeah. And then as far as trim and interior paneling and siding and stuff, that's all covered in the online part nice. of the class. Nice. Yeah. Well, I have uh, one great question. Um, these these interviews stream live just into Tiny House Engage. And um, nice. there's a great listener question, um, which is, can bamboo be used with the natural building techniques? And I guess maybe I'll say, could bamboo be used with, with slip straw? Yes, bamboo could be used with slip straw. The issue is then how do you attach the roof to the structure? Hmm. And so the, the glory of using lumber and the lumber does not have to be big. Like we actually, in this particular situation, we just ripped roughs on two by sixes in half. So we're using two by threes. They can be wonky boards. Like I typically, when I'm, when I'm talking about tiny house construction, I do not recommend that people use salvaged lumber, you know, for their framing. I recommend salvaging all sorts of other things, but the framing lumber typically no, because then it just creates all sorts of wonkiness. But when you're doing slip straw, it's totally fine. You can have the wonkiest looking two by fours you could ever want. Like it's no problem. But um, because it all just gets hidden by the wall. And honestly, if there's a little bit of a little bit of uh, form to those two by fours, it can create a little bit more of a fun organic cobby looking wall. Okay. But if you are doing a more conventional frame, it makes it really easy to then put your rafters on (laughs) and have them have something really strong to sit on. And so I would say, yes, it is possible to use bamboo and it will be this whole nother way of thinking and looking at it that would then look to bamboo construction to see how then they attach a roof. Okay. Yeah. So you have to figure out your structure of how you're going to make it structurally sound with bamboo and then you could use the technique. Yeah, you totally could. Nice. You totally could. And I do use it. I use strips of bamboo about every two feet in the wall. I drill through the studs and use strips of bamboo horizontally to kind of help the whole thing not settle as much. Mm. It's like bamboo rebar Got it. inside of the slip straw. Now, when you do your roof system with slip straw, is it kind of the same process? You put up your forms and you, you pack in the straw? So the roof, the roof is not insulated with slip straw. Okay. It's, it, it doesn't really work for roof insulation. Okay. We just use like a, whatever you would use for if you're doing a straw bale or a conventional or any sort of roof. We just frame it out with rafters and then we put some sort of bat in between the rafters typically. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that could be wool, it could be hemp wool, it could be any number of things. Although there's also thatch. <laughs> and thatch is a very exciting place. And it's unfortunately in most of the world, in the last like 40 years, I mean, there's, it, there's traditional thatch in Japan, there's traditional thatch so much in the UK and in Ireland and France and all, all over the world. There's been thatch and it's such a cool material like if you do it right with the traditional materials that are used in all these different places it can last like 40 years and it's totally renewable you know Mm. it's grass or grass stalks or different things and um it's also 
super insulative because, because it's grass. And so, you know, that's a whole nother story that I would love to talk about. And, and it's very fascinating because the traditional roofing material in Japan is this grass that's called miscanthus grass. And it is horribly invasive in Southern Appalachia where I live. Ah. And so it's this, it's this really interesting boon. And I've thatched a couple little structures with it. And I have a dream of, uh, of bringing in a Japanese thatcher Mm. as an instructor to show us how to properly use that because I mean I was just playing with it and and the structure that I built I thatched and it had too low of a slope like typically with thatched roofs you need a very high pitch to be able to make to make it shed water properly okay and so mine was not a high enough pitch but it's still you know the structure lasted and was waterproof for like seven years. And then that particular structure was just kind of this fun, whimsical structure that then got replaced by a much more utilitarian, bigger structure later. But um, so I don't know what would have happened after that seven years. But up to that point, it was great. And But it's interesting with the miscanthus, you don't actually use the grass, you use the flower stalks of the grass, which are like seven feet tall. They're pretty amazing. But cool. that's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother story. That's a, that's, that's a third, that's a third interview right there. Um, there you go. Well, Natalie, I, you know, you're just such a wealth of information and you're so enthusiastic about it. I feel like we could just talk (laughs) for hours, but, um, you know, I just thank you so much for, for being a return guest on the tiny house lifestyle podcast. My pleasure. And thanks so much for, you know, serving all of these people with your resources and with this podcast. It's just like, I don't know. I just really appreciate everyone who's doing work with empowering people to build their own structures and to live in small structures, like just the environmental repercussions in this culture that's become a culture of like McMansions is like pretty profound. So I really appreciate your work and thanks so much for talking with me and, and yeah, just working together. It's really fabulous. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much to Natalie Bogwalker for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including all the photos that, of things that we discussed at thetinyhouse.net slash 170. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 170. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. <laughs>